0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1137 in the Pew Bible. Romans chapter 12 and we are just about done we are coming to the end of our series for the fall which was called the upside-down kingdom next week will be our last week and we have been taking some time to talk about the kingdom of heaven and how when Jesus came he taught us of something a little different than even maybe what we traditionally think where we tend to think of the kingdom of heaven is something we will get to one day. But Jesus, when he came, said, no, I'm building my kingdom now. The kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is starting on earth now. And if you follow after me, you are citizens of this kingdom. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we wanna know, well, what are the ways of this kingdom of heaven? Every kingdom has laws and values and, and boundaries. And so we wanted to dig into what does that mean for us as Christ followers, to be parts of the citizens, part to be citizens of this kingdom of heaven. And as we do that, what we've emphasized in this series is often the ways and the values and the, the commands of this kingdom of heaven are very different than the way I would naturally wanna live. They're very different from the way the world tells us to live. They're very different than how the animals would want us to live. And so they are backwards. They are upside down. They take some intentional, uh, paying attention to, they take some intentional effort to actually live these things out. Our tagline for the series has been to learn the ways of the kingdom is to find the will of the king, that Jesus has set up his kingdom. And if we want to live a life that is pleasing to him, we need to learn about what this kingdom is all about and how we can live it out more intentionally. And so we're going to dig in. We touched on this a little bit early already as we were uh, taking a moment to. Uh, think about Remembrance Day and to pray. Um, The topic of the sermon today is commonly called pacifism, and I'm not going to dig too deep into the theology of this today. We are an Anabaptist congregation. That is just our particular stream of the church. Uh, We don't think we're more right or better than anybody else. That's just where we are, and every church and every denomination makes choices on how they interpret certain things and how they believe about certain things, and so Anabaptists from the beginning have always been pacifists. They have always been peacemakers. They have always emphasize that. So I did a little mini-series on this a couple of years ago, and the the title of the sermon series was called Peacify, because when we talk about pacifism, sometimes people think that means when stuff's going on, you just sit back. And that's actually the exact opposite of what pacifism means. We would say pacifism is not passive. To be a pacifist is to say there are certain things that I won't engage in when it comes to conflict, but I am actually going to actively and intentionally and sacrifice officially be a peacemaker I am actually going to seek to actively and intentionally, and if need to be sacrificially, bring peace wherever there is conflict. So it's actually a very active word. And so the sermon series was called "Peacify," because we believe as Christ followers, we are called to peacify the world. We are to bring God's peace wherever we go. But I really dug in in that series, those are the dates there if you wanna look it up. Uh, I really dug into the theology there. We really dug into some of the tough questions around pacifism. Uh, what about in the Old Testament when God tells Israel to go to war? We engaged with some of those questions that come up. Um, but I'm, so I'm not going to, I'm just throwing that up there as a reference. If you want to go deeper in the topic, you can look those up either on our website or on our podcast. They are all still there. And I'm not particularly emphasizing the, the war side of things today, should a Christian take up arms. Uh, that's not really the point, because for most of us, that is not our personal struggle. Lord willing, it never will be. Lord willing, we won't have to have to make that choice. But we are all called to be peacemakers. Peacemakers. And there are lots of different conflicts that go on in our lives, not necessarily violent ones. There are conflicts in our families, in our marriages, in our churches, in our workplaces. We are called to be peacemakers wherever we go. As followers of Jesus. And so, uh, not everyone in our church is on the same page on this particular topic. This would fall under what we call disputable matters. Uh, the whole body of Christ doesn't agree on this. Anabaptists are actually very much in the majority on, or in the minority on this one. But uh, this is where we land. And so, when I grew up in the Pentecostal church, we would sometimes have people who would come and say, Well, I don't really believe in tongues or the gifts of the Spirit the way you do. And we would say, Well, that's okay. That's a disputable matter. We can agree to disagree on certain things as long as as you're okay with the fact that we do agree with that here you are going to see the gifts of the spirit here and you're not going to be a force of division you're not going to cause problems within the church about it and we would say the same thing about pacifism this is our statement of faith this is what we believe not everybody believes it in the same way and we have room for that as long as you're not going to be divisive and, and stir up problems about it and not get mad at me when i preach on it Uh, Because when I did this last series, some of you got mad at me, and and there was an anger about it. Uh, For the first 300 years of the church, the church was undeniably pacifist. Undeniably. Uh, For the first 300 years and then the Roman Emperor had a conversion. He came to Jesus and Christianity became the official Religion of the Roman Empire and now there's a problem because what happens when the Emperor needs to go to war? What happens when all these people who just converted to Christianity who are in this huge Roman army that's dominating the world? Well, what are they supposed to do and that's where Augustine and others began to come up with ideas like just war that there are Biblical times where someone might be able to go to war, Uh, but they didn't talk about that up until that point the early church was undeniable pacifist. Now we've gone so far the other way that it almost sounds offensive sometimes when people hear it for the first time. And so when I taught this last time, some people got kind of angry about it because they hadn't heard it before. They didn't realize that we felt that way here. And I just thought it was interesting. And I didn't exactly say it this way to people the way I'm going to say it now, but I thought I'm teaching about peace and it's not making you very peaceful. So why do you think that is? Just something to think about. Why is anger the reaction when we talk about being peacemakers? And I think it's just, we're so far from it. Uh, it's just so far off our radar. We just don't talk about it enough. So as we get going, I'm going to show you a video clip here. I showed it the last time in the last series, and it's from the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is on Netflix now if you haven't seen it. And it is the story of a pacifist, a Christian pacifist who signed up to serve in World War II, uh, but he had the struggle of, as a pacifist, I don't believe I can kill. As a pacifist, I don't believe I can engage in violence. And yet there is evil that is trying to take over the world. So what am I going to do? How How am I going to to navigate this? So his name was Desmond Doss, and he wasn't an Anabaptist, he was a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's coming from the same place, uh, biblically and theologically as us. And his struggle of, I, I can't kill, I can't participate in this death and destruction, I can't contribute to it, but what can I do to stand up against evil? And so in the scene we're about to see, he actually got court-martialed because he wouldn't pick up a rifle, he wouldn't shoot his weapon. He says, I have signed up, I wanna be a medic, I wanna serve my country in that way and I wanna serve my brothers in that way. Uh, And they said, well, even medics have to go through this combat training and he just refused to pick up a rifle. And so in this scene that we're about to see, he's actually being court-martialed. He's on trial for refusing to obey an order to pick up his rifle. Play the clip. Come on. And when that movie came out, pacifists everywhere went, yes, that's the argument. What you just saw there in 90 seconds is the pacifist argument. We can't sit back and do nothing when evil is there in the world. We can't sit back in the face of aggression and death and destruction. We can't do nothing, but we also can't participate in that death and destruction. Scripture says death is the last great enemy. We shouldn't help the enemy as followers of Jesus. In a world full of evil, sometimes streams of the church has says war is a necessary evil sometimes. And Anabaptists have just said, no, not for the Christ follower. There are other things we can do, but we're not going to participate in the evil. We're not going to contribute to it. And so he had a conviction that I can go and be a medic. And that's, that's the beauty of that, is that he's not a coward. He's not running away from the problem. He is not hanging back. I'm going to go right to the front lines. I'm going to be right in the middle of all of that danger. But when the world is ripping itself apart, I'm going to be there putting it back together. In the midst of an evil situation, I am going to be a force for good. Where lives are being taken, I'm going to be working to save them. I'm going to be an agent of goodness in the midst of all of this, not an agent of death and destruction. And so that's an upside-down way to look at it. That's an upside-down approach. Uh, to conflict. That's an upside-down approach to uh, that sort of situation. And again, for most of us, uh, that is not going to probably be our struggle, Lord willing, about warfare, because that's not typically something uh, that is a part of our lives day to day. But as we're going through this, putting aside the warfare thing, just thinking about conflict in general. Uh, In that war scene, and there would be times where he was on the front lines and he was wounded and he was in danger, he said, in the midst of all of this, I am going to be a force for peace. I am going to intentionally and and actively go and sacrificially give of myself to bring some goodness into this situation. So even if war is not your particular struggle, in your marriages, in your workplaces, in your relationships, where there is conflict anywhere, where can we be intentionally and sacrificially sacrificially used of God to bring peace, to bring conflict down uh, in order to be that blessing to this world. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Romans chapter 12 and page 1137 in the Pew Bible, and we're starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul is moving towards the end of his letter to the Romans, and as he often does, there's uh, in the letters, there'll be a sort of a block of moral teaching that he often inserts as he's kind of getting ready for his final thoughts. And as you read through that list of everything that is going on, there's a lot in that passage that is upside down, right? There's a lot that seems backwards to maybe our natural inclination, the way we would naturally choose to approach something. Right from the top, starting in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do Do not curse. And persecution in the way that the Roman church would have felt it is probably not the same for us as it was for them. At that time, persecution was not just uh, someone being cruel or someone calling them names. There was a very real risk of arrest, of torture, of death. This idea of throwing Christians to the lions, that was a real thing that happened. That was not an abstract thing. That was something that uh, they had such a low view of Christians in the Roman culture that they killed them without a problem. They were burned at the stake. They had their heads cut off. They were crucified like Jesus was crucified. Persecution was a very real thing. It was a very real threat in a way that it probably isn't for us. And in that context, the word of the Lord is bless those who are doing that to you. Bless and do not curse. And when someone comes against us, the instinct is to curse, right? The instinct is to push back. But the call of scripture upside down is no, you bless the ones who persecute you. And of course, that's never more clearly pictured than in Jesus, our savior, who we are trying to follow. Who when he's arrested, he doesn't raise his voice. When he is slandered, he doesn't slander back. When he is lied about, he keeps his mouth shut. And when he goes to the cross and is hanging there on the cross, being murdered for no reason, His response is, Father, forgive the ones who are doing this. Forgive them. Have mercy on them. Have compassion on them. Jesus lives this out for us. And then says, come follow me in this. So bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15. Mourn with those who mourn. And we maybe do that one a little more naturally, right? Someone's in mourning, there tends to be a rallying, right? Someone is, has lost a loved one or has gotten some bad news, and we tend to go there and we tend to support that. The rejoicing with those who rejoice is also good sometimes, Sometimes that's really easy to do, and and if someone has good news, then we can often rejoice there. The challenge is sometimes uh, the person got the thing that I wanted, and I haven't gotten yet. And that's a little harder to rejoice in, perhaps. I've been married for a number of years. When someone else is getting married, it's amazing. Couldn't be happier for you. When I was a single man who really wanted to be married, and one of my friends got engaged, I was happy for them, but it came with a twinge of, ah. that's that's what I want my rejoicing wasn't as pure maybe as it could have been because there was a bit of jealousy in there can we rejoice even when someone else is getting the thing that we wanted and when someone's mourning can we be there can we rush to that place of pain and wrap our arms around people and be with them in the middle of their mourning moving on to verse 16 we're gonna move quick because there's lots to cover here live in harmony with one another do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position Do not be conceited. That uh, verse about low position can also be translated, be willing to take the lowest task. Be willing to take the lowest seat. Uh, And that's a theme we've come up with already in this series. We have touched on that a number of times. From week one, that Jesus, being in very nature God, lowered himself to become a servant, and we are to follow after his example. We are not to elevate ourselves. We are not to promote ourselves. We are to take the lowest spot. And we are to live in harmony with one another. We are to be people of harmony. And when you think about the reputation that Christians have in the world, it is not always that we are a peace-loving, harmonious people. Right? We fight with other Christians, we fight with other denominations, we are getting mad about the sin that we see, and we're just yelling at people all the time. And I know that's not actually true, but I think that is a bit of the reputation that we sometimes have. When Christians show up on the news, it's not always because they're doing really good, godly, Christ-like things. It's because there's been another denominational split or there's been another big protest or or whatever. It's not always, we don't always have a great reputation for living in harmony. But part of the mentality of of the Anabaptist thinking on being peacemakers, on being pacifists, comes from just the idea of the kingdom of heaven. That when scripture talks about heaven, the kingdom of heaven undeniably is a place of peace. Here's one example of that from Isaiah 2.4, talking about eternity. It says, He, the Lord, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. There are other passages like that throughout the prophets and in the book of Revelation that talk about there is a day coming when war will end. We should all be able to agree on that. Yes? Amen. I'm assuming an amen on that. There is a day when the weapons will be turned into farming instruments because there will be no need for it anymore. There will be a day where we will be so present with the Lord and we will be face to face with him. There won't be nations rising up against nation anymore. There is a day when peace will be on this earth. There is a day that the Lord will establish that kingdom. And so what Anabaptists have looked at passages like that and said is, okay, so the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of peace that God is establishing a kingdom of peace. And like we've said throughout this whole series, well, let's not look at that as something that will happen one day. If we are citizens of the kingdom of peace, then we should start living out that peace now. And it will be fully realized, of course, one day. But as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, if we believe that Jesus is the prince of peace and he's building a kingdom of peace, then we live out that peace right now. We don't just say, ah, one day we'll get there and in the meantime we can do the opposite. But no, we are going to live out that peace now. And we're going to live out that peace in our marriages and in our churches, and we're going to be agents of that peace everywhere that we go. And Paul gets very practical on some of this. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And repaying evil for evil is really how conflict tends to escalate. Right, we've been wronged, and so we wrong someone back. We've been hit, and so we hit back. Even wars—it's often a sort of a rallying escalation that gets to the point where it's full conflict. Um, we often talk about World War II. World War Two is often the pushback on pacifists. Well, what about Hitler? Uh, and we dealt with that in the series, so I won't go into that today. But. You know, most wars aren't like that. Like when you look at World War II, you go, that is an undeniably evil force that wants to take over the world, wipe out the Jews. Like that's the epitome of evil happening. And, And Anabaptists would say, yes, in accordance with Romans 13, states should have stepped up to check. That's exactly what God had for them to do. But most wars aren't like that. If you actually look at wars, most wars are over power, greed, selfishness. Like World War II, there was a noble standing up against evil. World War I wasn't that. World War I was a bunch of crumbling superpowers with a lot of petty tensions that finally blew up into this horrific thing. And at the end of it, everyone, what was that about? Like what, what good was accomplished? It was just a bunch of empires jockeying for power and, and one last big stab before most of them were done. Most wars are over greed, and power, and and money, and influence, and things like that. And they start with little things that escalate. And again, even if that's not our main thing, whatever the conflict is in our lives, where are we repaying evil for evil? Or where are we breaking that cycle? I don't see this modeled anywhere more clearly, this problem, than in my children. And anyone who's a parent can respect that. So the other day, we. Got home from school. I was doing some schoolwork upstairs for my school. The kids were downstairs watching some TV. And I hear them arguing, but they're arguing in such a way that they don't want to be heard. So I just hear ow, 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 ow. And so it's escalating a bit. But OK, let's, let's see what happens. Let's see if they can work it out. And so they don't want dad involved, but something is going on downstairs. Uh, and then finally they hear smack. Ow! ow, ow. And then I hear another smack, and the other one says, ow! And I still wait just a second. Can they salvage it from here? It turns out, not even a little bit. Because then you hear smack, smacks, and then they're yelling. So now dad is downstairs. Everyone back to your corners. Everybody's crying. Everybody's pointing a finger. They're yelling at each other. All right, everybody just back off and relax. I took my victim impact statements from each party trying to cobble together the narrative of what went down. And basically, from what I gathered, knowing that each party's lying a little bit, um, they were watching a show, and so when they're watching a show, they watch these short Netflix shows, these kids' shows that are kinda of 15, 20 minutes long. And so Kaylee gets to pick a show, and then Matthew gets to pick the next one, and then Kaylee, so they have to take turns, and they usually do pretty good at that. In this case, apparently Kaylee picked the show, And when it was done, she decided, I want to pick the second show. I want to pick the next one. And so she said to Matthew, hey, Matthew, how about I get to pick two in a row, and then you get to pick two in a row? And Kaylee is better at telling time than Matthew is. And so she knows that by the time her show is done, it's going to be dinner. And so he's not going to get to watch a show at all. But he's on to her because she has tried this before, and it has worked. And so he said, no, it's my turn. So that's how the conflict started. Kaylee trying to steal a turn, Matthew saying, no, it's my turn. And going back and forth on that, and then finally Kaylee said, well, I have the control, so I get to decide. And at that point, Matthew began chanting, you're not the boss of me, 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 which apparently flew Kaylee into a rage because although she knows she's not the boss of him, I think she secretly wants to be the boss of him. So that was the first she smacked him. She got so angry. Then he's hurt and angry, and so he smacks her back, and then she smacks him and throws a pillow, and then he throws something at her face, and then it's escalating, and then we're we're in it. We're just there. And so everything's fine, and everyone calm down. But part of the dad talk in that moment wasn't just, we don't hit, and we share the show and everything. like That was part of it. But part of the dad talk was either one of you could have stopped this at any moment, right? Either one of you, there was a cycle of escalation happening. Either one of you could have walked away, or come and talk to dad, or, Uh, or been loving enough to give up the show to the other person, like it wasn't that big a deal how this all started. Uh, Either one of you could have broken that, and that's not natural to us, right? And I would love to say it gets easier when we get older, and maybe we don't hit people in the same way as we get older, but it's very easy for that escalation to happen. Someone says something mean to me, I can say something back, and then you're at it. Like, it happens in marriage all the time, it happens in relationships all the time. When police officers are getting trained, what they're really getting trained in is the art of de-escalation because they're walking into all sorts of conflict all the time. They're walking into all sorts of stressful things where violence is sometimes present, and their job as police officers, what they train in primarily is de-escalation. How do we calm this down? How do we stop the cycle of escalating tension? How do we stop the cycle of retaliation? How can we step in and stop that? Because, again, it would be nice to say we grow out of it, but there's these things that happen to us that we, we jump into early in life, and we don't always grow out of them as we get older. But I think, honestly, and this will sound silly, but I mean it as truth, that a pretty good rule of thumb for us should be, if a toddler would do that, maybe I shouldn't do that. Is that too controversial? If a toddler would do that, maybe I shouldn't. So if a toddler would keep everything for themselves, maybe I should do the opposite of that. And if a toddler would hit someone who is bugging them and retaliate and escalate the conflict, maybe I should do the opposite of that. And if a toddler only thinks about themselves, maybe I should be different than that. And we call that maturing, right? We call that getting better. We call that growth. Uh, and I think lifelong journey of growing out of these natural instincts we have towards self-preservation and putting ourselves first and hurting those who hurt us. It's not natural to us. It's upside down to go the Jesus way on this stuff. Moving on to verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I love the way it's worded because it doesn't put more on us than we can carry. Because if it just said, be at peace with everyone, that's really hard because I can't control everyone. I can't control everyone else. And so there's a caveat in there, as far as it depends on you. If you're in conflict with someone, you can't control what the other person does. You can't make them live at peace with you, but you can choose to be peaceful towards them. You can choose to live that out towards them. So as far as it depends on you, as far as you are able, live at peace with everyone jesus would say in the sermon on the mount blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of god apparently one of the things that marks us in this world as god's kids is that we are peacemakers we are peace creators we are agents of god's peace we calm conflict we are de-escalators in our marriages and in our households and in our workplaces we bring peace wherever we go now it has often been commented that jesus didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers." Because sometimes in the name of keeping the peace, we hold back. We don't speak up when we should, right? So sometimes being a peacemaker in the midst of conflict does mean we do have to enter into that conflict. Sometimes in the name of being a peacekeeper, I can hang back. I can get very passive and say, oh, I don't want to make things worse, so I'm just going to do nothing at all. And then we see evil that we don't speak up about, or we see action that we don't take an action on, right? We are called to be active peacemakers, not just peacekeepers who keep our mouth shut and are okay with everything carrying on. We are called to actively be agents of God's peace in the kingdom. Moving on to verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you he will heat burning coals on his head. Again, it's so opposite to instinct. It's so opposite. When you are wrong, there is something else that wants the other person dealt with. We want to see them uh, held to account. We want that revenge. And scripture tells us the exact opposite. And it's not that we are uh, letting that person off the hook even. It's just trust that God will deal with it for you. Do you have enough trust to say, I'm not going to take an action against this person. I am going to let God deal with that. I will leave room for God. God says he's the one to avenge it. If I have been wronged, he is more than capable of taking care of it. I don't need to wrong that person in return to deal with it. That's not easy to do because it requires a tremendous amount of trust. And sometimes we feel like, well, if I don't deal with it. And Paul's saying, if you've been wronged, let the Lord deal with it. Let him deal with it. He's a better judge than you are and he will deal with it better than you can. Not easy to do, but I would say the teaching itself is pretty clear, not just here but elsewhere in scripture. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's the opposite of killing your enemy. That's the opposite of going to war against your enemy. Do the opposite. Feed them, give them something to drink. In doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. And there's a lot of debate about that burning coals thing because it doesn't sound pleasant, right? If I said, here's some coals, guys, like it wouldn't be seen as a blessing probably. And so there's a few different ways it gets interpreted. I don't think any of them are maybe crystal clear, but one of them is, is that the coals represent judgment. And so if someone is doing wrong against you, you are to do good against them. And then as that happens, they are opening themselves up to God's judgment because they're in the wrong and you will not also fall under that judgment because you're doing what's right. And so it is the idea of God's judgment. Uh, The other one that I actually like a little better is that the the coals signify cleansing. They, They signify change, they signify transformation. When Isaiah is caught up to heaven in Isaiah chapter six, one of the angels takes a coal from the altar, if you remember that story, touches his lips and says, you're clean now, right? You're sanctified. And that if someone wrongs me and I wrong them back, then we're really no better off. But if someone wrongs me and I do good to them back, in that way, God can use that to actually start to work on their hearts. God can can use that to actually de de escalate the conflict, but not just that. Uh, And so this idea is that as we return good to those who wrong us and trust that, you know what, God will take care of it if it needs to be taken care of, that God can actually be doing work to make them different people, which ultimately should be our goal, right? That all of us are growing in in walking closer to the Lord. And so again, there's a tremendous amount of trust required to say, I've been wronged, but I'm going to let God handle it if there is something that needs dealing with he is a more than capable judge if there is something that needs dealing with i don't need to take it into my own I would add a couple of caveats into this, that if you are in any situation where you are unsafe, if there's any situation where uh, you are just over your head in that way, you are not required to stay there, and that is, that is time to get out. That is time to take that action. If there's anything illegal going on or anything major, that's not time just to sit back and say, well, maybe God will deal with it. You, I think, biblically, you are released in those situations. Jesus said to the apostles, when the persecutors are coming, uh, run. Right, like you don't have to stay and and automatically just be a martyr. Like when the persecution comes, go to the next town. Like it's okay to leave when you're in danger. Uh, So I would just add those in there. But other than that, if it's you know people are hurting us with words or or whatever it is that we say, can I trust God enough that He will avenge me if I need it? And sometimes in those times in my life when I have felt wronged, in retrospect I look back and went like "Ah, I wasn't really wronged. I was just mad. I wasn't that wronged, even if it was a little bit, or, or I was wronged, but I was equally wrong. Like, sometimes you have those moments, but the times in my life where there is legitimate wrong going on, God's way better at dealing with that than I am, because he's always going to deal with it perfectly. Can we trust him enough to do that? Last verse, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That was Desmond Doss's heart as he went into war as a medic. I'm going to do good in the midst of all of this evil. And so when we are thinking about all these things, just as a challenge as we go our separate ways today, that when we are wronged, when we are hurt, when we are attacked, when we are persecuted, when, when conflict is there, when all of these things are going on, There is a very natural desire to retaliate there is a natural desire to hurt those who hurt us there is a natural desire to get defensive and defend ourselves but to ask ourselves the question when we're in those moments whatever has been done to us what's the godly opposite thing for me to do whatever was done to me what is the godly opposite thing to do and then to actually have the faith to step out and do that What's the godly opposite thing? What's the good thing to do to push back against this evil? We don't want to participate in it. We don't want to participate in slander. We don't want to participate in hurt. We don't want to participate in conflict. So when those things are happening to us, when we see those things around us, how are we going to push back on that? What's an action we can take to bring peace to that situation, to bring goodness to that situation, to bring blessing to the one who is doing that thing to me? And again, Jesus shows us how to do this. He responds with blessing in everything he goes through at the cross. He responds with mercy to those who are doing the killing of him in that moment. Everything about this teaching is upside down, maybe more than any other week we've looked at in this series. Everything about it is upside down. Almost every verse we read, there is something in there that seems the exact opposite to all of our natural instincts or how the world would tell us to live. But we are called to be conflict-enders. We are called to be peacemakers in our lives. And so what does that look like? It's going to take some wrestling through because it's so not natural to us, but to look around and say, where can I actually do that? Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. If you have questions about the message at all, and last time I talked about pacifism, there were a bunch. Uh, So please feel free to make use of our email address here, questions at meadowbrook.ca. I'll be happy to take some time to keep chatting about this with any of you. So practical application as we go about our week, as we leave in a few minutes is to take a look around where is there conflict involving me? Where am I in conflict in my life? Is there any relationship that needs to be reconciled? Is there any place that healing needs to happen? And what might a godly step be towards that in that scenario? And beyond just the ones that we are personally connected to, to look around us. Where is there conflict around us? Where is there conflict in our workplace or in our school or or in our church or in our family? Where can I go and actively be a peacemaker, a peace creator? Where can I be an agent of the Prince of Peace who is building a kingdom of peace here on earth? Where can I help advance that kingdom of peace? What action can I take to help bring peace to this conflict? And then to actually have the boldness to do it and just trust that that is something that the Lord wants us to do and where can we actually take that step. Would you stand with me, please, as we get ready to close and worship? The words will be up on the screen, and we encourage you to sing along with us.